big part of this theory of brand building that and my philosophy of brand building is a lot about thinking about building a brand as you would a social movement. And a cornerstone of a social movement is having a status quo and a reality that you're not happy with, that people band together to change. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay Ventures. Today, we're having a conversation with Lisa Barnett, one of the co-founders of Little Spoon. Little Spoon is disrupting the baby and kids' food market by giving parents healthy options that they don't have to invest time to prepare. Now, along with being a founder of a company, she's also become a bit of a marketing influencer. We're going to hit on a bunch of topics today in the conversation. We'll cover how she left VC to become a founder and made that decision. She gives us tips on marketing, such as how to identify a common enemy and how to create a movement within your customer base. It's a really fantastic conversation. I think anyone who's a founder or in the marketing field is going to find something valuable. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Fire on Marketing. Fire on Marketing is a full-service marketing firm providing high-quality, cost-effective solutions. They support companies in developing websites, creating content, email marketing, optimizing SEO, and managing ad campaigns on social media, Google, and beyond. What's unique about their approach is that they connect all of the marketing activities together to create a unified conversion loop and generate higher yield for clients. If you're interested in learning more, visit fireonmarketing.com. Lisa, thanks for being on. You've become a bit of a marketing whiz in the space, and you're a co-founder of a company called Little Spoon. But before we get into all that, I want to run through a little bit of your background because I think it can be instructive to folks who are listening. Great. Well, thanks for having me here. Okay, great. Uh, starting off, you did track and field at Penn. Am I right on that? We're going real far back. Okay. Oh, yeah. We're doing that. Yeah. Yes, I ran cross-country and track at Penn. It was unplanned. I walked onto the team a couple weeks into starting my freshman year. Interesting. Tell, tell us about how far you went in that, but also, do you think that journey has helped you in any way in business? Yeah, so, I mean, basically for full context, um, I was always really into fitness and athletics, and that was always my whole life spent, you know, every weekend, as I'm sure you do with your children, um, running around to games and tournaments and things like that. Um, decided not to pursue a sport in college. And then when I got to Penn, uh, a few weeks in, I was really bored. I didn't understand what people did with their time. Uh, you finish your work, you hang out, and then what else? Um, started getting better at running. I would say I was definitely like mediocre um, in my- At the college level. Uh I always saw myself as mediocre, even in high school, but I was starting to get better. <laughs> and my, I called up my coach who um, was well connected with a bunch of the collegiate coaches. And she set up a meeting for me and I walked down there and I was like, Hey guys, I would like to try to walk onto this team. I'm a 400, 800 meter runner. Um, I've just done, you know, spring track and they're like, you can walk on and we'll see what happens, but you're not a 400 meter runner. You're a distance runner. You will be doing cross country. Oh. And that therein started my very first season of cross country at the D1 collegiate level. Uh, I was terrified out of my, out of my mind. Um, I had never run 
a race that was longer than two laps around the track, let alone right. doing a 6K. Um, so that experience, um, and I think I actually think about this a lot going back to your question, that experience has shaped a lot about me and how I approach uh, startups and just like life in general. Um, it forced me to really trust my training and trust myself. Um, I used to get like a lot of anxiety before races. Um, I would be so nervous. I could barely talk to anyone. There was a rule when my parents would come to my meets, like they weren't allowed to talk to me till after I ran my race because I was so nervous. I couldn't even engage in a conversation. And over the years of running track, I ended up doing 12 seasons of cross country and track. So every year it's a three season sport for a distance athlete. Um, in the collegiate level, um, I got a little bit better and better and learned that you can't have assurances. Life doesn't have any assurances, no matter what you do, there are things that are going to be thrown at you that you can't predict. And you kind of just have to like believe in yourself, trust yourself and know that, you know, whether it's a race where you adjust in the middle of the race or you adjust your goals and priorities, that's just like a good life lesson. Um, especially coming from someone who I think innately, um, really wants to be able to control those outcomes and wants to be able to like get in front of everything. It's just impossible. And as a founder, and you, you, I'm sure you're laughing because you're obviously a serial entrepreneur. You can't control like anything. You can only control right. your reaction to things and right. your focus. That's literally it. Yeah, we live in chaos. We thrive right in and live in chaos. That's yeah. absolutely. Some uh, of us thrive in chaos, but we're all living in it. We're all, yeah. Unfortunately, we are all living in it. Um, so I think that was a really big learning. And I also think just like the, the discipline, um, and focus on like execution, um, everyone's given innate talents, um, but there are, there's no kind of like sacrifice other than, you know, how hard you work. Um, and that's really what's determining who's succeeding in the startup world, right? Because like everybody has the same ideas. Like I don't think I could ever claim that I've had a novel idea. Ide ideas are a dime a dozen. And I think what I learned from just being a collegiate athlete was doesn't matter if you're the most talented or if you had the best idea relating it to startups. Um, if you're working harder and you're training and you're consistent and you are ruthless about what you're pursuing, um, you'll see the benefits from that and you'll, you'll win. That is the surefire way to win. That's the only thing you could control is how hard you work. You can out execute a lot. That's, that's fantastic. What attracted you to marketing? And I think when I look at your background, it's kind of a, it looks like a linear marketing story, right? Uh, all the way back to the beginning, I, I noticed you uh, studied psychology in college. Uh, I find that very often careers are a windy road out the front windshield, but in the rear view mirror, it looks like a straight line. Somehow it all kind of makes sense if, if it goes the right direction. So uh, what got you into marketing in the first place? Yeah, it's a little bit of hindsight 2020. I feel like every time I talk about my career path, it, to your point, it sounds so linear and not that it wasn't planned out. I was very thoughtful about what I, the experiences I wanted to have in my, in my career, but I actually attribute most of the the linearness, uh, if that's even a word, to hindsight 2020. You can piece it together once you look at it. But in the in the moment, right. I was really just pursuing exciting opportunities um, that 
that I was passionate about. Um, so I started out actually in management consulting. I was at BCG. So that was kind of like the general experience that I needed. I had no idea what business really was. I mean, my dad is a small business owner, so I saw him build from the very beginning. Um, but I hadn't even heard of the industry of consulting until my junior year in college when everyone's talking about these on-campus recruiting events and everything. Right. And consulting came up, literally never heard of it as a sector, um, but decided that was a good first step because I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so pursued that. And while I was in consulting, I ended up working on a lot of consumer brands, CPG retail, and doing a lot of work, um, both in like deep data analytics. Um, I was, fun fact, I was like a couple courses short of a stats uh, major in college, never finished it. It was just like accidental that that happened. Right. Psychology and stats. And then you ended up in marketing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Insane. So, so did the consulting thing for for a couple of years, um, and then quickly realized, okay, I have a good understanding of lots of various activities. Um, what can I do with that? And this is where sort of the opportunity, and uh, you know, just being open to trying new things, I think, really pays off in your career, especially when you're younger. Um, I just like stumbled across uh, an opportunity at Estee Lauder Companies. Um, the role wasn't even exactly the kind of role that I would have like put on paper that I wanted. But as I got to talking about the people I'd be working with, it became very evident that Estee Lauder Companies, which is, you know, a beauty giant that owns 35 plus individual brands in their portfolio, they were facing a really interesting inflection point. Um with regard to consumer behavior, people were moving from the department store to many other channels to buy their beauty products. Um, and unfortunately, Estee Lauder Companies was looking at their portfolio of brands and saying, gosh, north of 80% of our top line is coming from a department store. The department store is on the decline. We have no ownership over our customer. And they're watching all of these startups then at the time to orient you. This is like when Warby Parker and Dollar Shave Club were really becoming... Right. Uh, forces in the retail environment. And they were looking at that saying, we don't even have a concept of a CRM. Like you have to buy in traditional beauty, you have to buy your data from Macy's to even know who your customers are. You have no, no idea. Um, and so I was joining right at that time when they were focused on how do we change our business models. And this sort of led me not into specifically marketing, but into this world of direct-to-consumer and e-commerce and brand building outside of the traditional channels. And so my directive while I was there was really to understand what can we do with the existing portfolio and how can we even potentially start up or incubate other brands that are more uh, suited to these high-growth channels like digital, like e-commerce, stuff like that. Um, so that was kind of how I inadvertently I didn't even join in a marketing role. I was in a, I was in that kind of like office of a CEO type role working with right. M&A and corporate strategy. And I was just kind of deployed in random. But it was a marketing issue generally. I, yeah, it was a marketing issue. It was a business model issue. Um, and I learned most of my chops in marketing and in e-commerce from that experience. At least that served as the foundation. When you look back at the large companies who are head on with this new breed of e-commerce, how do you think they're going to fare? 
you know, this was already how many years ago, uh, like eight, nine years ago that I was at Estee Lauder Companies. And um, it's it's a little funny because we're still having the exact same conversation now. Like, how do we fight against these startups that are doing things differently and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I think about this a lot because my background is from the corporate world. Um, it was more recently that I, you know, started spending all my time in the startup space. Um, I think that corporations, big companies, the fallacy is that people think they're unaware of what they're doing wrong. They're actually extremely aware of the holes and the gaps in the market. It's that there are these institutional barriers that prevent them from solving the problem in the way that like a, an underdog startup can. Um, an example of this would be even just how how they are able to make decisions in a large company, right? Like the people who are on the ground seeing customer behavior aren't empowered to make those decisions to respond to it. So it has to go up a ring and a ladder and you have to gradually convince people who are further and further away from the problem that it's worth investing in resources to try something unproven um, out. Uh, and the risk reward is not there for a large corporation. It's they're better off taking a sideline approach, seeing how the market plays out, let the startups take all the risk. And then once it's proven, we'll go and pursue it, except they're always starting from a disadvantage. Um, this is why there's so much opportunity for startups to tackle problems where they should lose because they're so significantly under-resourced compared to the incumbents. Um, I think that's going to continue. These institutional barriers are not going anywhere. I mean, there are certainly company, big companies that are trying to change their org structure, change decision-making, try to get rid of these, but I don't think we'll ever be able to fully, fully uh, take down all of those barriers. So I think they will continue to struggle, but that's also the relationship and why there's a, a good market for startups, because these companies need startups to help solve those problems for them. If you were running Estee Lauder, what would you do differently? Huh, uh, without getting in trouble, no, I'm kidding. Um, what would I do differently? Yeah. I think I, I'm thinking about the position these folks are in, with you know organizations that are not able to be dynamic, and an onslaught of innovation coming at them. What's the move? The move is to well. They're a complicated company because there's a lot of different brands playing in very different segments. Um, but I think generally, the first thing I would probably do is look at the organizational structure. So Estee Lauder Companies, like a lot of large international corporations, is a matrix organization. So there are roles at the corporate level that are then repeated at the brand level and repeated at the region level. So there's a lot of redundancy and that creates uh, it slows you down a lot when you're making decisions because you end up having to coordinate with a lot of different people because you're technically in the same role, just focused on a different part, whether it's a region or a specific brand, and you share resources. So I think one thing would be rethinking the org structure. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely not going to claim to be an expert in org structure for massively complicated companies, but I um, I think that's an overlooked area that can actually unlock a lot of value for a large corporation. Um, 
and thinking about how do you find the right nodes in your organization that are going to be the people that ruffle the feathers um, because the way the corporate environment is structured, unless you're really comfortable being aggressive and upsetting people, you don't reward the innovative thinking. Um, and it's it's not on purpose. It's not intentional, but it happens because it's just the way, you know, the hierarchy of a corporation works and how difficult it is to continue to get promoted and grow within a large organization. Um, so I would think first about the org structure and how you can empower and identify who those nodes are in your company. So, so you would retool to structure more innovation within versus take a defensive strategy of acquiring companies earlier on or? Well, I think you kind of have to do a combination of, of both. Um, I think for sustainable, you know, to have a competitive advantage and build that foundation, you have to start from from the organization and that foundation. I think on the M&A side, I mean, depends on how the company is structured and what they can stomach. If you're a public company, you can stomach, you know, you have right. a different risk profile um, in the beauty world. Estee Lauder Companies is significantly smaller than their biggest competitor, which is L'Oreal. L'Oreal plays in both the prestige, like luxury beauty segment, as well as mass. So they have a lot more cash. Um, they can pay up for companies where Estee Lauder Companies can't. Um, they don't have the same cash and tolerance for paying up for a startup. So if you're a company like ELC, you need to tackle it at the foundation level because you're never going to win entirely just from buying up companies. Because um, you can't even compete with your other incumbents who might take that strategy, and they have a very different cash situation. Uh, on the reorg point, there's a story that stuck with me. I once heard from another VC that they had hired in a new CTO into a company, and the company was having a really hard time getting their uh, development cycles sped up. The product was just getting built too slowly. They get this CTO in, they sit him down there, like, "What do you need? You have a blank check. We'll hire whoever you want." We need to accelerate throughput. The guy stops and thinks for a minute, leans over and says, how many people can I fire? It's exactly the opposite. I love that. Um, it was, that, is in, that concept is actually ingrained in me because I was in venture capital right before starting Little Spoon. And one of, there are a few things that stuck out from my short time, especially relative to your career in venture capital. But one of them was that companies bloat way too fast. And a little bit of starvation mode is a good thing. So we were very intentionally slow to grow Little Spoon's team. Um, and I think we extracted a lot, a lot of value out of constraining resources in that way. People are people are awesome. They're creative, they're scrappy, but like if you cushion them, you're training them not to be that way. Um, so I like that CTO. Maybe I should hire him. Yeah. <laughs> he sounds great. Before you jump over to Little Spoon, which I want to get into, um, the venture fund you went to is a big name. Ma Maveron, that is a fund that is known around the country by everyone in the venture community. Most entrepreneurs know it. Um, do you want to give a little overview on the firm for people listening just so they know it? Yeah, sure. Maveron is an early stage venture capital fund that was started by Dan Leviton and Howard Schultz, who started Starbucks. Um, it was, They have a diversified set of LPs now, but it's around $150 million fund where they look to invest in consumer brands um, that are obviously leveraging technology, whether that's in the form of e-commerce or, or otherwise. Um in a purely uh, brand 
first uh, mentality. Um, they do seed in Series A and they stop there. Um, so they are, um, they were right in my sweet spot. I've always been obsessed with consumer brands. Um, and I got introduced to someone who was at the firm at the time while I was in my first year at Warden. Um, and I actually started working with them part-time in my first year remote from Philadelphia and then came on board um, like that summer and that fall. And I stayed out in the Bay Area and continued to work with them until I then jumped to another VC firm after that. Um, but eventually you, you did something that a lot of VCs think about but don't do, right? VC is very hard. The job is very hard to get. Uh, I think it's harder to get than do. And so once people get a spot in VC, there, it takes a lot to get them to relinquish it, right? And you stepped out to start Little Spoon, which we'll get, in, get in more into in a minute. Uh, how did you think about that decision? I think most, if you, if you get most VCs and sit them down and say, hey, would you think about going and starting a company? They'll pay lip service to the idea of getting more hands-on operating experience because it'll make them better investors. It'll make them better board members. But the fear is that if they step out of the game, they may not be able to get back in. So you made a choice to step out. Can you take us through that decision? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mentioned earlier, I grew up with a father who has always been in small businesses. He's always been running his own his own show and grind, grinding away. And I think, uh, and he's an extremely passionate, optimistic guy. Um, what does your dad do? You have to tell us a little more now. Uh, well, Growing up, he was doing, he was running a bicycle company. Um, he is like a jack of all trades kind of guy. Now he runs a bunch of different e-commerce sites. Um, okay. Literally everything under the sun. Um, he has a bobblehead business. Um, my dad's a quirky guy. Uh, yeah. It's it's very fun. Um, he, he, I think, instilled uh, a very strong desire that I didn't articulate know how to articulate to myself early on of really wanting to be able to build um, and be on the front line and on the ground and, you know, for, for both good, good reasons. And, and I think some sometimes have negative uh, byproducts. Uh, he very much instilled the value of hard work and grinding um, very early on. Uh, everyone in my family is, are incredibly hard workers Um and there was just something that in that was inside of me that was like, I know I'm meant to be an operator. Um, I sort of fell into venture capital, actually, to be honest. So maybe I just didn't value the job the way everybody else did. Um, I'm saying that like slightly facetiously, but um, I went into business school with the intent of getting into the startup world. I worked on a bunch of different ideas that I had while I was in business school. None of them really stuck. And... Then I got introduced to Mavron, and I was also working on Dorm Room Fund, which is students investing in students with its subsidiary of First Round Capital. And I sort of fell into the VC world, and I, I went with it because it was interesting. I was learning a ton. Um, but, you know, I think a year into it, I started seeing so many ideas come across the table and I'd find myself getting really frustrated when I was sitting in a room with founders because I just wanted to, to do it. Uh, I, you know, there's a lot of value VC can provide, but when it comes to operating the company, um, the best VCs like 
take themselves out of those those granular decisions. It's not their place. Um, and I hated that. I would see all of these challenges that the founders are growing up against and, you know, have ideas and want to get more detail. And it just wasn't my role. Um, so I, I realized pretty early on that I, I needed to just get on the other end of the spectrum. But I... I didn't immediately have an idea. And I kind of learned, especially from being in business school, one of the positives was um, I was knocking my head against the wall trying to think of an idea. And this goes back to my earlier statement. I was actually going about it very incorrectly. I was trying to figure out an idea. I wasn't focused on a problem. Um, And VC actually taught me to care a lot about the problem. And so I started thinking about problems that I care about. And I've always been really interested in kind of the health and and wellness industry. So that was always kind of in the back of my mind. Um, And I started noticing, especially being a consumer brands investor, that there was just this pattern of pretty much every consumer category was getting innovated to respond to the needs of of a very dominant new generation, this millennial generation. And billion dollar opportunities were being created in dog food, in mattresses, like literally every consumer category, um, targeting them, launching products and experiences that were convenient, high quality, like transparent, speaking to this generation. Um, and, you know, that struck me as as interesting. Let's shelve that. Um, and in the process, I was also just starting to notice these generational shifts. I was like, hmm, we're innovating in dog food, we're innovating in here, like what happens next? Um, and I realized that, you know, I think this was a couple of years ago in like 2016, four out of five babies that were being born were born to millennial parents. We hit an inflection point where now this generation that was creating all this value and change and opportunity and the other consumer categories were bringing those same behaviors to parenting. Uh, but, you know, this generation didn't have any products or brands or services that was speaking to them, whether it was because the products were, you know, shelf stable, crappy baby food, which I'll get into that, um, or they were too expensive. Uh, you know, and I think that I started to spend a lot of time um, thinking about these parents and thinking about my own life, which I'm, spoiler alert, I'm not a parent yet, um, but want to be one one day. And I was starting to see how nobody was really like speaking to this whole new generation of parents that are coming into the fold and that there has to be incredible opportunity to solve problems for them because it's incredibly difficult to be a parent. And at that time, my sister had her first baby. And then I got into the fold and my sister is like my best friend. We're super tight. So I was living and breathing what she was living and breathing. Um, And she was struggling. And this is a well-educated, smart person in the health industry. And she called to my attention, like, hey, I want to feed my child well. Like, this is incredibly important to their development. But all of a sudden, three months in, I have to go back to work. And I literally can't figure out how to make sure my child is eating the things I want her to be eating. And it's like, how is that a problem? How is that not solved for? Um, And so I started diving into this baby food category. And I realized all the things I now know to be true, which is that baby food and the convenient baby food that would help solve the problem for this working parent, which side note, another interesting part of millennial parents are that 
you know, it they are more often than not a dual income household, which is not a quality of a previous generation, meaning like there is generally someone staying at home. Um, that really is a big paradigm shift in terms of the businesses and the products and services that are available to parents. It wasn't caught up yet to service an extremely time-starved couple. Um, and so as I was diving into like what's available to help my sister, what's convenient, I just found old baby food, <laughs> processed crap that's sitting on the shelf that's older than the child eating it. And it was really crazy to me that the, this was the only convenient option for parents. Um, and it occurred to me that parents just really aren't set up with the right resources that meet their lifestyle. Um, so me and my co-founders decided to create Little Spoon. Um, and I got into this in a, in a bit of a long-winded way, but like, as I started getting into this space, it didn't even occur to me like, oh, should I leave VC or start this? All I could think about was this. It wasn't even like, I wish I could tell you I was mulling over this decision. I honestly barely thought twice about it. It was just a natural step. And I was fortunate enough to be working with co-founders who were separately very passionate about this space for different reasons. My co-founders are all coming from the food industry um, to have people to build this with. Um, that's one of the hardest parts about starting a company um, is finding the right partners to do it. And I had that and the stars were aligned and I, you know, was, I don't know how old I was, was I 26 at the time, 25 at the time. And was like, yeah, like what else, Something what else would I do? Yeah, that's great. There's a, something you hit, you hit on. Most people define entrepreneur as a risk taker. I've always hated that definition. I'm an entrepreneur and I've never considered myself a gambler or someone who's going out taking risks. The definition I like is opportunity obsessed. And it sounds like you smelled opportunity and grabbed onto it and everything else wasn't part of it. I could not agree more. I could, I am not risky at all. I hate taking risks like that. I like adventure. I like excitement. I like opportunity, but I don't consider myself a risk taker either. This is very calculated. Right. A lot of people in your life looking at you starting this company probably think, you know, you're doing something very risky. Oh my God, Mark, you don't even understand. When I got on the phone, especially with my parents, people are talking about the parenting industry now. There's really been an eruption of innovative brands that have come out of, I think, all these macro factors that I was talking about earlier when it comes to this generation of new parents. Um, but when I, no one was talking about baby food, kids food. I, I remember getting on the phone with my mom and I was like, so I'm going to leave my, my cushy VC job, uh, right. and going to start this company. And yeah, I still have my student loans, by the way. Um, right. and she's like, you're going to work on baby food. Like she was speechless. She was like, what? And my, and my parents are very supportive. So I'm, I'm lucky in that regard, but like they were scratching their heads, like, how did she end up here? Um, I do think a lot of my decisions in life to an outsider appear very risk-taking and, and could even appear random. But in reality, it's been such natural progression of what I'm interested in and what makes sense at that time. Um, so I, I got that a lot. I got that a lot from the venture community. I was out in the Bay Area at the time when we started Little Spoon. We now are located in, in New York. But um, I got that a lot. People are like, you're leaving VC. You gave up a seat. Gave I up a gave seat up at the, a seat. The table. Very hard seat to get to go chase something because you were obsessed. 
I was obsessed. Awesome. I, I have been known to get obsessed about things. So yes, definitely that's awesome. obsessed. <laughs> that's real entrepreneurship. I love it. So that's a lot of buildup. Tell us about Little Spoon. It is a lot of buildup. Um, that's great. I think I think everyone's going to want to know what, it, what you guys do now. Yeah. Now we should tell you. Well, obviously we target parents. Um, so Little Spoon is all about making this experience of being a parent and keeping your child healthy, which is obviously one of the chief responsibilities as a parent. Uh, how can we make that easier for a parent? Um, so we are a national direct-to-consumer children's food and nutrition company. So we make everything from fresh organic baby food to vit clean vitamins to natural medicines to kids' meals, most recently that we launched a few months ago. Um, accessibly priced, high quality ingredients, and as easy and simple to get that to your door and in your child's body. Um, so that is- Can you explain that? What makes it so easy, right? What, 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 what steps have you taken out for folks that were there before? Um, a ton of, uh, a few different parts of this experience. So when you look at keeping your child healthy, nourishing your child um, from the beginning, your child starts solids. Um, so that means that for those of you who are not parents out there, that means you're taking them from formula or breast milk, which is all they're consuming for the first four to six months of their lives, and then starting to introduce real food. Um, usually that comes in the form of a puree um, or something blended up or mushed up together because a child obviously can't chew very well in the beginning. Um, and so that whole process from figuring out what do I feed my child? When do I feed my child? Uh, how do I make sure that the food is prepared in the way I want it to be prepared? Usually you'd have to do that yourself or rely on a preservative pack, shelf stable pouch or jar. Little Spoon says, okay, we're going to cook all that food the way you would want to do it at home. We literally just use organic vegetables, fruits, superfoods, grains, stuff like that. Puree them up, deliver it to you, ready to eat and cold. Um, you can store it in your fridge and you feed your child it and you do not have to think outside of that because we've done the work for you. Every delivery evolves as your child gets older so that, you know, if you're not sure what to be feeding them, if you're not sure how to evolve their palate, get them exposed to lots of different ingredients, we're automating that process for you. And on top of that, we have a number of different parts of this consumer's experience to help a parent uh, learn and make decisions for their child. Um, we have a 24-7 customer care service. You can text in our to our customer care team at any time and ask them any question. Um, that is actually really empowering to a parent, especially a new parent who has a ton of questions. Absolutely. It's confusing and there's no manual. There's no handbook. There is absolutely no handbook. And through the depths of the internet, there's still not enough information because the issue is the curation part. Every situation is slightly different than what you read about and you're nervous as a parent. And you should be nervous. You have a big responsibility to keep your child healthy. And like they're more durable than most new parents think, but you still want to make the right choices. Um, so we're trying to provide them with the the tools to be able to do that. And some of our consumers are, you know, hyper involved and want to handpick every product and every blend that their child's getting. And the majority of them are like, great, put me on autopilot because I'm not sure what to do anyway. Um, and are very grateful for that service. We have different parts of the experience as your child gets older that changes as they become a toddler and a big kid. 
Um, but at least for our baby food, you know, product line, uh, this handholding and this ability to give your child, um, you know, fresh food that also doesn't break the bank is is really empowering for a parent and incredibly simplifying uh, in your day to day. Yeah, I, I have two children. They're beyond diapers and beyond baby food, but there was a lot of time spent with a blender early on. It was a lot of work. Every, everything was a big process, a big to do. And it's a big mess. And one of the most important things when your child is starting solids is just diversity of exposure to ingredients. Think about how many different ingredients you cook for yourself. Not, not many. Most people have like five to 10 different ingredients that they regularly cook with. And then all of a sudden you're told, oh, your child should taste the rainbow. Make sure they try all these different greens, all these different reds, all these different oranges, like whatever it is. And it's like, I don't want to buy this entire large, you know, eggplant for my child to eat two ounces of it. Uh, and then I'm going to throw it out. And by the way, I don't even know how to spice it or season it or can I season it. And, you know, there's all these uh, worries that go through your mind. So we're trying to automate that process. And as your child gets over older, we try to solve for different things. So when your child's now eating a full meal, uh, we have our new line plates, which are kids meals. And the whole idea there is truthfully, how do you get your child to actually eat what you're putting in front of them? When your kid becomes a toddler, they become distracted and picky. Uh, they, you know, I chase, I have a five-year-old niece, Adeline. I mean, we, I like follow her around the house with a plate because she's just busy. Like she doesn't think. Everyone knows this problem. Every parent understands. It's a, it's a huge problem. So for us, um, when we were figuring out how do we build a solution for that problem, um, we wanted to use kids classics, um, dishes that kids actually recognize and like, but just make them a little bit healthier, make them something that as a parent, you don't feel bad about getting. So as opposed to just taking some frozen chicken nuggets, putting them in the oven and giving to your child, we'll make a chicken nugget where 50% of the chicken nuggets are actually vegetables. Um, we will pan sear it instead of fry it. We will make sure that we're using organic ingredients, antibiotic free chicken, um, all the good stuff. Um, but to your kid, it's just a fun chicken nugget. Um, and so that that's really the concept of that whole product line. Um, and we built that in partnership with our community. It was way, uh, way more, um, we felt way more confident with our plates line than we did with our baby food because we were building that line when we had a community already. So we were able to use our customer base to, essentially help tell us what they want, what they need, um, what would work. Um, we have a great consumer feedback loop now that really drives our innovation process. Well, as you know, I'm a big fan of the company, but taking even a bigger step back, you, you come from an e-commerce family, spent better part of a decade training in marketing, more or less, finance and a few other things, and have now applied it to the baby food industry. So you've become a little bit of a marketing guru. I don't know if people, you know, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit here, but you've had, you've done public speaking at conferences. You've been uh, in major publications. Uh, one of the things you've written about is the idea that uh, some of the best marketing strategies rely on identifying an enemy. Who is Little Spoon's enemy? Yes, I feel very strongly about about how to build a brand that really lasts, um, that has a lot of drives, a lot of business value and sustainability. Um, to answer your question, 
Little Spoon's enemy is this paradigm of parenting. Uh, so unlike what you would expect me to say, um, or maybe not you personally, but one would expect me to say uh, Gerber's or, you know, some brand of a competitor. And they're absolutely a competitor, but that's different than an enemy. So taking a step back, a big part of this theory of brand building that and my philosophy of brand building is a lot about thinking about building a brand as you would a social movement. Um, and a cornerstone of a social movement is having a, a status quo and a reality that you're not happy with, that people band together to change. Um, for Little Spoon, it's not that the options like suck. It's that there is an unfair trade-off for parents over and over again for every decision they have to make. They're met with unnecessary trade-offs and and a lack of transparency and support um, in that What's process. What trade-off are you referring to? What is it? For, for I mean, most relevant to Little Spoon, the trade-off between spending a ton of time, spending a ton of money, but getting, you know, the kind of product that you want for your child or having to sacrifice uh, something related to quality, their health, um, because you just don't have the time and don't have the resources and you need to go the convenient route. So the quick, the quick and ready baby food products are not healthy, is what you're saying? Correct. They're packed with preservatives. They yeah, all- tell us about it. I think most people assume if they're for babies, they assume the government has regulated it and it's healthy. Baby food is actually, uh, baby food and kids food, um, since we play in both realms, um, are not independently regulated. They're regulated by the, the FDA. Um, so same as any other food that you're going to eat. So obviously there are consumer standards, but what people don't know is that most baby food that's sitting on a shelf has underwent a process that essentially renders the food um, what is actually called commercially sterile. So you're, what does that mean? It, it basically means you cook the food to death because you need it to be able to have a shelf life unrefrigerated for multiple years on average. Um, so by cooking the food to extreme temperatures multiple times in the process, you are able to basically deactivate uh, a lot of the nutrition that's in the food um, that enables it to just sit there on the shelf. Um, that's a problem. So are, the, are the labels then that say, hey, it has this vitamin or whatever, is that not accurate? Is like the vitamin in there, but sterile, is what you're saying? Uh, the vitamins, no, I mean, the labels are, are accurate. The issue is that the nutritional density of the food is significantly less than if you're going to have fresh food. Um, that doesn't undergo this heat process. Many people, if, even if you haven't made baby food or are aware of the industry, have overcooked broccoli, right? When you overcook broccoli, it loses all its color. It loses its taste. And in the process, you actually use a lot, lose a lot of the nutrition that because mm. you literally cook it out. You could see it in the in the texture and the flavor and in the, in the uh, coloring of that broccoli. That's essentially what's happening when a baby food is undergoing heat pasteurization. Is there any, has anyone studied to know the impact of this? Are there known health ramifications of this diet? The known health ramifications to me, um, when I was starting even to look into uh, this space, it's all of this stuff we're dealing with later in life. It's obesity, it's diabetes, um, all of that's happening because we don't give parents um, access to high quality nutrition for their child at a time when their brains are forming and when their bodies 
are developing at the fastest rate that they were ever developed. We know that food and nutrition dictate your health. That wasn't always the case. Uh, when I was growing up, that was not that was not language that people used. But this generation, the research, it's not I'm not saying it's specifically on like this product caused this, but we are seeing all of these issues later in life. And then when you look at the options of how you started your life, uh, most people are being fed junk. Um, or nutritionally neutral stuff at best, um, which is no good either. Um, think about if your brain is developing uh, at the fastest rate that it's developing. Nutrition helps fuel all of that development. Uh, if you're lacking, the impact of that deficiency is way higher late than if you were lacking later in life. Um, so this is really, I see what we're doing is tackling these issues like obesity um, right at the source and making quality food more accessible to the kids who need it most. Is there an affordable solution? I think a lot, I imagine a lot of families who are doing quick service, fast food, they're having breakfast at McDonald's because they, they're time constrained and they're off to a, a low income wage. What solutions do they have that are both quick and uh, nutritious? Yeah, I mean, we... Not many. Um, Little Spoon does our best job at making what we're giving as affordable as possible. Our kids' meals are under $5 a meal for a fully formed meal using organic ingredients, no processed um, elements. It's it's pretty affordable. Um, but, you know, we're I'm not going to claim to say we're, we're solving world hunger here. We're not. Um, but our role and uh, a big part of um, the role of a startup in solving certain societal problems is very much to understand where your place is in that problem. Um, for mm -hmm. us, we're very focused on the middle that gets squeezed. Um, in, in a perfect world, which we don't live in, but in a per perfect world, the government should be helping the lowest of the low income who, who really can't solve that. And traditionally, the you know, the, the private sector has helped the, the very wealthy. And what happens time and time again, everybody in the middle is left to, to kind of fend for themselves. And so that, you know, if I have to articulate sort of how we think about creating accessibility, there's this balance between making sure we're giving you a high quality product. We will not cut corners on that, but we will make only the necessary decisions um, to give you the highest quality product that doesn't have to be priced out this middle, uh, this middle population that I don't believe is getting served, um, both in the nutrition, uh, category as well as many other categories, um, in our consumer culture. If you were able to write some laws for the government, right, you're dealing with a movement, a real public health issue. You're doing it as a private company. If you can wave a magic wand and get through all the political morass, what would you want changed? What rules would you want enacted? Um, better transparency around how a product is made. Um, that's the biggest challenge, at least on the baby food side, is that you see broccoli in a pouch, you assume it's broccoli in a pouch. And that's a very fair assumption. Um, but there's no requirements to disclose how that food was made, meaning did this undergo high torque heat pressure where your food is cooked to 500 degrees for hours at a time 
And, you know, nobody knows that. So I think having that information out there is important. I think also putting the burden back on uh, the private sector or companies, like there is a responsibility that that we should be held to, um, to bring products to market that are also helping people. Um, you know, there are different segments of the market. Not everyone could be the cheapest option, but, and that's fine. That's why we have competition. Um, but I think that I don't know exactly what the the law would be, but there's certainly some incentives that the government can create for companies to do the right thing when it comes to food and food quality. I remember reading maybe a year or two ago, um, whenever like Lunchables um, had their 50 year anniversary. Uh, and I was reading this quote from the CEO of Lunchables, it was an article in the Atlantic and it was something, the, the, the writer asked some question. It was something to the effect of like, you know, how do you sort of rec- reconcile the size of your company, which it's a massive business, um, with the fact that like you've come under fire for putting out really unhealthy stuff for kids. And his response was something to the effect of like, well, people are buying it. And like, I was disgusted by that. I mean, that that's not an appropriate response. And, and frankly, it's very uninspiring and uncreative. The cool part about being an entrepreneur is that you get to, the onus is on you to figure out how to make money solving a problem in the right way. Uh, and that's the challenge. And that's exciting to a lot of people like probably you um, and my fellow founders. Um, but that was not something that he at least articulated in that article. Um, and that is that is a perfect example of the issue um, that we're trying to to change. And we're trying to change that that paradigm and, and eliminate some of these unnecessary trade-offs and the lack of resources that an average parent in the U.S. has um, that they shouldn't. All of this has become exacerbated by COVID, by the way, um, where parents are becoming tutors, teachers, coaches. Oh, and but they also have to maintain their jobs uh, and they're doing it in one household or one apartment or wherever you are with no additional resource from anybody unless they happen to work for a company that decided to help them. Um, So. (laughs) Well, that's a pretty clear example of the enemy you were referring to before. Yes, yes, it's it, it sure is. And it really, you know, the whole idea is about activating a group of people or a group of consumers in the same way that a social movement would inspire people to come together and make change. Um, And that can help really drive, you know, people to care and want to tell your story for you. Um, If we were just talking about, hey, we have this better product, it's way higher quality and like you should totally hate on Gerber's. That's not inspiring. What people care about is like, hey, I'm struggling as a parent because it's hard to do X, Y, and Z. And this group, Little Spoon, this company, is trying to open up the conversation and the dialogue. We're trying to create solutions together to change that reality. That's exciting. Uh, That's empowering. So you've had a lot of success in churning the community, which is around this cause, into a marketing force. What's the formula for other entrepreneurs listening who are maybe in totally different industries? What are the best practices? What are the things people need to understand in order to make this work for them? Yeah, um, I'm obviously a big believer in uh, building a community and 
that driving true sustainable like business outcomes. Um, the formula, I mean, there is a rough set of activities that I think as you're building your brand and it's never too late, even if you've launched, you can still do this after your product is out there. But the goal here is to really, and I keep referencing this concept of a social movement because it's really inspired me to think about brand building in a very different way. And so when you're thinking about how do you generate a community, it's very hard to like inorganically start a community. You kind of like can't. Um, There's so many startups and companies that run Facebook ads to like join a Facebook group. And it's like, that's, that's not how it works. Those things exist as byproducts of people coming together. So how do you get people to care and come together? One is, and you pointed out very aptly, first step is, define your enemy and define it in the right way. You know, we talked a lot about Little Spoon, but if you think about other maybe um, very well-known companies, like I think about Glossier, for example, their enemy is not a specific brand. It's not a specific, um, it's not even a specific like shopping experience. It is literally the the beauty ideals, uh, the industry, the beauty industry, which has told us what, how we should look and what kind of makeup to use. Glossier very markedly says no. The consumer is the one who should be dictating that. This should be, and that's why they create products that you could layer, that you can make them, you know, very aggressive or very subtle um, because no one should be top down telling you how you should look. Um, and that is threaded throughout Glossier's uh, brand. And there are, you know, you they are an undeniable example of the powerful community that's driven uh, the company's growth. Um after you've established that that enemy, you want to give people, uh, you know, a, communicate the why. Like, why do you exist? You have to get out there, like, a reason for your existence. So the first step is, like, what are you frustrated about that you're trying to change? And then how is your solution to, allevi- to alleviate that pain point? And how can we get that out there? Um, so for Little Spoon... At launch, we wanted to highlight what we were collectively up against, which is like this unfair trade-off between quality and convenience um, that parents had to make when it came to their child's health. Um, When we related to that unfairness, you know, in our launch video and in our microsite, we have a microsite called nomoraldbabyfood.com. That was really the way that we were showing the contrast between kind of the status quo of feeding your child something convenient and the way we wanted to see things change, which is everyone should have the ability to give their child fresh organic baby food. And this rallied people and actually led to us formalizing our army um, and community that has now ended up been, been kind of harnessed in a community that we call is this normal, which I'll talk about later. Um, And then once you establish that reason for existence, you want to create these like moments and events to make the story very tangible and relevant. So this can be something that's very organic that just like happens in real life. Um, For example, Ashley Graham, who for those who don't know who she is, she's a plus size model. She's a new mom. She has she, she has become very vocal in being very real about her experience as a mom. And she posted a picture after coming home from the hospital in her postpartum diaper. 
Do you want to know what most of my friends reacted to that picture who don't have children yet? Some of them pregnant. Why do you come home in a diaper? Literally every woman is sent home in a diaper. That is not talked about. Nobody tells you that. How is that something that we're not aware of? And she was kind of, this is, this is sort of under, it underscores the issue, this paradigm in parenting of like the lack of transparency and the honest conversations to support parents Absolutely. through a very difficult process. So we use this incident to communicate why Little Spoon exists, to break down these misperceptions in parenting in a very newsworthy, relevant way. But if something doesn't happen in the news, you can manufacture it. You can construct a moment or an event. You can write an op-ed rallying the troops and, and making that relevant. You could write a manifesto and post it everywhere um, and, and create a new moment, create the news yourself. And that, that gives people something to start to pay attention to. And then it's just about building an on-ramp and getting people to gradually participate and display their association with your company, your brand, your philosophy. Um, fans and this loyal community can be created. You have to cultivate it. You have to, you have to feed it and give them opportunities that are first small and then bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and then you start to build a real community that cares and you can start to leverage them in all aspects of your business, customer acquisition, product development, um, and these are really the activities that that the formula to building that community. Um, are there platforms you use? Is it an email newsletter? Is it Facebook, Twitter? Where, where does this live for you? So everywhere, it, and and that's what makes it difficult. And so once you've rallied troops, you have to be methodical methodical about setting KPIs to measure the impact. Um, sometimes that's from like a pure customer acquisition perspective, but you could also measure it in terms of engagement, in terms of, um, you know, follower growth. Um, so it depends on the medium that you're on. We have a platform called Is This Normal, which is a separate site from littlespoon.com that is an advice portal and content hub. Um, so lots of different ways to measure um, engagement and growth and conversion through that. Um, we have a, a newsletter that's become very popular um, with parents. Um, we have half a million subscribers to it, um, never paid a dime, um, that uh, you can measure, obviously, the effectiveness there. We also use Facebook groups. We use um, private Instagram accounts. We have a Slack group with uh, our ambassadors. We've harnessed a section, a subset of this community and created a chat, a very, we wanted to treat it as a performance marketing channel. So we mm -hmm. said, okay, let's take this subset and start reinventing what it means to, uh, to be an ambassador of a, of a brand um, and, and think about that from a performance marketing perspective. So we do this on a number of different, uh, you know, channels and ways. Um, it's, it's actually quite complicated. Uh, people look at community as like this fluffy thing. It's actually extremely programmatic and methodical. So of all of that, I mean, you, you guys are leveraging a lot of different marketing channels. What's the, the one people aren't paying attention to? Is there some sort of marketing channel that no one's thinking about that every company should be leveraging? It sounds like I, I heard a stat recently, 60% of every venture dollar raised is dumped into Google and Facebook ads. Uh, I don't know if that exactly holds true, but it's probably not completely wrong. It's probably right. Yeah. And it's, you know, we have a marketing agency 
you know, the, the math can work, but it gets tighter and tighter. And so creative strategies, other channels are always very helpful. What's, what's uh, maybe you could share a secret with the folks listening. Well, it might be a little evident, but I think that there are two non-traditional marketing channels or, or people don't necessarily think about it as a marketing channel. One obvious, I think, based on everything I've said is literally your customer. Um, how do you, it's, it's, it's actually so basic, right? Like everybody wants word of mouth from your customer, but they really are your most important source of acquisition, especially in a category that we're in parenting where most people learn about things from like their WhatsApp group with other moms and dads. Um, right. So it's, it's a hard quote unquote, I'm air quoting since people can't see me, but um, it is, uh, it is a very hard channel to scale. But if you methodically create programs and ways to measure how your customer can be your source of source of acquisition, whether that's through a loyalty program, an ambassador program, a lot of my roots in beauty um, have have influenced how we've sort of created these engines. Um, Sephora uh, is known for having one of the most powerful loyalty programs that exist. Um, some of it's more retention oriented, but there are a lot of elements of loyalty programs that drive acquisition and drive talking about your brand. Um, so making that programmatized um, and measuring it uh, is actually a really powerful channel, but it does require patience and investment. And that's the challenge with startups, especially venture-backed startups where you're under pressure to show ROI. That's why people end up um, pushing money through Facebook because it's it's more it's closer to a faucet. You put money in and you get sales out. Um, and it's not a bad thing that if you're on Facebook, I mean, we, we do Facebook ads too. The, the challenge sure. is that over a long term period, you don't own your audience. So like Facebook changes the algorithm. Facebook undergoes a lot of changes due to privacy laws, which by the way, are going to happen. Everyone should get mm -hmm. ready. Uh, we're not going to be able to target and measure in the same way that we were. And the companies that have created a community and have figured out how to turn customers into uh, marketing channels will be the ones that survive through that. Um, the other channel that I think people don't think about, and this is a little bit further down in the funnel. So once someone's aware of your of your brand and of your company um, is actually customer service. Um, many prospective customers uh, will write in, they'll have questions, they want to understand the product. Um, that's an opportunity to build a relationship, to communicate who you are as a brand. Our customer service team is treated as a marketing line item, not a cost center. Um, and that's because we can attribute conversion to our customer service team. And there's a way to do that, that's scalable, that you, you can scale a level of personalization in your business. It's not easy, but you can do it. Um, and that is a very important piece of a company like Little Spoon's marketing stack um, there. So those will be, I guess, the two maybe less thought of marketing channels. Yeah, no, it's smart. It's smart. And I think the mission's fantastic. Um, as a call to action, there's a lot of people who are going to listen to this who are would-be entrepreneurs. Maybe they're not already in a space. Maybe they share your passion. Are there other segments of the children's space that need help? How can other would-be entrepreneurs listening have impact? What are the problems that are out there to solve? 
I would love and I would love to back and work with someone who can figure out the childcare challenge. Um, childcare mm-hmm. is, it is so, it is abysmal how little support parents have when it comes to childcare, um, particularly in the baby and like pre first grade stage. So like when you need daycare, right? Um, the industry is is terrible. The options are, it's extremely expensive. Uh, The quality is questionable. There's not great regulation around it. Um, It's honestly crazy that we ask people to go back to work three, four months in and like no one, no one, it's like, yeah, figure out your kid, like spent, we're spending $10,000, you know, a month on X, Y, and Z. I'm being, you know, I might be exaggerating a little and depends on your market, but that is a hugely broken space um, that someone needs to solve. I do think there's a role for startups, I think, to to solving that that problem, um, but it's incredibly complicated. Uh, your story is fascinating. And when, when you take a step back, as I said before, it really looks like it was an intentional path. Where is this going? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Oh. I haven't had to answer that question in a while. Haven't done a job interview in a while. Um, Where do I see myself in 10 years? Everything that drives me personally is all about being able to have the ability to solve problems. And as hopefully I continue to, you know, succeed in doing that, I hope to have more and more opportunities to either play a role or start more companies that are, that are, you know, have an outsized ability to, to change, um, a reality that's frustrating to me and to the people around me. Um, it's nonspecific on purpose because I am, you know, very much driven, as you said earlier, so, so nicely, I'm very much driven by the opportunity. Um, there are spaces that I love and care about. Um, but like if you had asked me in, in college or even after college, if I was going to get into the food space specifically, like there's no chance I would have said that. Um, so that's roughly what the future holds for me. Um, I also love new experiences and, and you know, certainly starting a company is a new experience literally every single day. Um, I'm very much inspired and driven by taking new new chances and new experiences. So I hope to be able to continue to do that forever. <laughs> That's great. So, okay. So not necessarily wellness, but entrepreneurship, you know, in the innovation economy. Yeah. I mean, I lend myself to brands and consume the consumer world. That's absolutely my sweet spot. And it's what Got I'm it. really passionate about. Um, but you know, I think it's pretty unlikely that I'm going to get so excited about some enterprise SaaS technology that I like want to devote my 24-7 time to it. Um, but I never say never. <laughs> okay, here we go. All right, last two questions. How did your VC background help you as an entrepreneur? I think it's a background that most entrepreneurs do not have, and it's a blind spot when they have to go out and raise money. So for you, where, where did it have impact? Uh, in a couple of places. I mean, one, which you kind of hinted at, um, is in the fundraising process. Um, it's, it's not necessarily an advantage because you've, you know, a ton of people, although of course getting your foot in the doors is half the battle sometimes. Um, and I was able to get my foot in those doors because I was living and breathing in that industry. But I think that it's also 
you know, it gave me an understanding of the kinds of questions and worries and, you know, where, like, how does a VC make a decision around underwriting a company? Um, you roughly can understand that just as like a smart person, which if you're building a company and doing it hopefully successfully, you probably are. Um, but having kind of the exposure to the intimate conversations and debates around why you might go for one business over another um, was very helpful for Little Spoon. Um, it also affected how I went about the fundraising process because I learned from being on the other side that funds often say no because it's just the wrong problem for them. It has nothing to do with how good your pitch was or how great your stats and KPIs look. Um, so very much like dating, you just kind of have to find the right match. Um, and I think a lot of founders, and I saw this happen being on the other side, waste a lot of time pitching to the wrong type of investor at the wrong time. Um, and it, it, mm -hmm. it, it's, it comes at a cost. Um, one is the mental cost. Uh, you're Absolutely. always, you're always going to get a lot of no's, but it's, it's challenging. It's devastating. It's devastating. And, and it, you can you know, it hits you at the wrong time and like you could really question what you're doing. Um, it shakes your confidence. It's something that you have to get used to as a founder. Uh, you get very little feedback. And if you're doing things right, you only know when you're doing things wrong. <laughs> um, so Right. And even worse, all your friends are telling you it's great, even if they hate it. Always. So, yeah, always. Always. Um, so that's one piece. Um, the other piece that I think I gained from having experience in venture capital um, was just the ability to see patterns. Um, of course, in, in types of companies, um, types of problems that I like to solve, my approach to, you know, thinking about how to build a sustainable startup is, is in large part informed by seeing so many startups do it incorrectly. Um, so a couple of examples of that. One, um, saw time and time again, startups focusing on their other startup competitors and not their consumers issue and the problem. It can heavily divert uh, resources in the wrong direction because you react to a competitor and not to your customer's problem. Um, that's one you know, huge blind spot that I saw across different types of founders time and time again that like I try to internalize in myself as I'm running my own company. Um, another example would be founders from, again, across different types of companies have very common blind spots. Um, and, you know, it's a little bit of like knowing psychology. We, we know all these biases that we have as humans. You can't always overcome them, but some level of awareness, I, I you know, I hope helps. Um, and one of those was really about um, not collecting enough feedback from your consumer. Um, it's very easy as a founder to assume you know best because again, you are thinking about this problem over and over and over again. And you, you do have an outsized knowledge, but um, what ends up happening is um, a lot of really great founders and a lot of qualities of great founders are people who actually rely a lot on intuition. Um, and the blind side of that is you're not collecting enough feedback. Um, and so at Little Spoon, I mean, I, and I, I, you know, run our insights team um, because we are so militant about making sure we're collecting and quantifying feedback at every single stage of the business. Um, that enables us 
to override our blind spots. Because if we're seeing a problem arise that we thought we solved for, it's kind of hard to deny the numbers. Um, so Absolutely. knowing that that's a bias, I tried to create the engines that would quantify that so that like I wouldn't fight against it. That's great. It's fantastic. Um, and very wise, I think. So a uh, similar question. I usually don't ask the first one because not everyone on is, uh, has a VC background. What is the most important thing you've learned as an entrepreneur? And I ask this of everybody with the hope that there's one little glimmer of knowledge or, or tip that can help folks listening. I love this question. Um, I think about it a lot. If I have to pick one thing, um, I think it's that startups generally fail not because of starvation, but because of indigestion. So what I mean by that is most startups have a ton of ideas, a ton of things they want to execute on, a ton of products they want to create, and they're all probably great ideas. Um, but the way you fail more often, I think, is when you try to do all of those things. Um, it's indigestion. Um, you know, it's very hard to internalize this when you're in the thick of things because you're you're feeling pressure to move quickly. You don't know what's happening with the market. Maybe your investors are putting pressure on you. You're putting pressure on yourself because you want to accomplish so many different things. Um, but startups die of that indigestion. They focus on doing a little bit of everything instead of identifying the key needle movers and focusing on executing them to a T. Um, and you win with perfect execution, not with mediocre uh, launches across uh, 10 different products. Um, so I, that, would be, that would be the most important lesson I think I've learned. And it's honestly so hard to prioritize. It's so, so hard. It's one of the hardest parts of my job. Um, so Fantastic. Hey, I think this is going to be really helpful to a lot of folks. Uh, and I think it's pretty inspiring what you're doing for the wellness side of this. Thank you. So thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. Very grateful to Lisa for taking time to chat with us today. Hopefully her story and marketing advice were useful. If you liked what you heard, please look us up with a like and a five-star review and feel free to share with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. To hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for innovation with Mark Peter Davis.